0: Five new ships for the Royal Navy, we hear from the first sea lord, police under attack in Northern Ireland. What next? Trump gives Bolton the boot, or did he? And author Chris Ryan tells us why the SAS is struggling to get the right people.
1: They'll do a six-month rotation between Iraq, Afghanistan and possibly Syria, and they call that the circle of death.
0: The engineering giant Babcock has been named the preferred bidder for the £1.3 billion contract to build a new fleet of Royal Navy frigates. The five ships will be assembled at its Rosyth dockyard in Fife and will involve supply chains throughout the UK. More than 2,500 jobs across the UK are expected to be supported as a result of the Type 31 programme, including 150 jobs for new technical apprenticeships. while well, Laura Macon-Isherwood has been speaking to the first Sea Lord, Admiral Tony Radakin.
2: So I'm delighted with today's announcement. For the Royal Navy, it means five new frigates. We get those so that the first one is in the water in 2023 and all five by the end of 2028. And we badly need these ships because they are going to replace some of our older Type 23s. And what we're getting is a big, proven, uh, fantastic frigate which has adaptability at the very core. And that's what excites me. We're gonna get ships that are gonna be reliable, proven technology, but also with the ability to host UUVs, so unmanned underwater vehicles, UAVs, drones, and allow us to accept some of the most exciting things with technology and have them in a brand new frigate. And the other part about this is we, the the Ministry of Defense laid down an enormous challenge to UK shipbuilding to say can we have a frigate of this size and capability at this kind of price and UK shipbuilding has responded in a brilliant way and we're going 10 times faster than we went with the Type 26 so not only is it a good price it's actually coming in at real pace and that's part of the excitement about this.
0: I imagine that's going to be received quite well then that kind of pace and like you say bring it back into British uh, ship. Yards, docks, because there has been a lot of criticism, hasn't there, about who's building our ships and where the cash is going?
2: So I think there's been some criticism, uh, but not around warships. The government's policy is very, very clear. If we're building warships, they will be built in the UK. There's a broader debate about some of our support shipping, but this is a warship. The warships are going to be built in the UK. This is fantastic for the Royal Navy. This is fantastic for UK shipbuilding.
0: The first Sea Lord there. Well, our defence, unless Christopher Lee is here, all good news, then Christopher.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a the ship called the Type uh, uh, 23 frigate, and that's the one that you see at a moment out in the Gulf, looking after tankers and things like this. A general-purpose frigate, one that doesn't have to be state-of-the-art, but the ship itself is, and you can improve on it. You know, as you see something that's worth buying, you get, you buy it, strap it on, see if it works, etc and so that's what it's replacing this which is this type 23 that's very good the first one in the water he says in uh, in 2023, 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean to say it's 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 operational in 2023 you can bung another 3 years on top of that they say we're going to put each one it'll cost 250 millions well i've never seen any figure put out for a shipbuild that, that 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 runs the same thing the point is it's not going to replace as he seems to suggest Uh, all the type 23s the 13 type 23s and they're actually being withdrawn from service because they're old simple as that need Mm -hmm. replacing Um, and you're only getting five of these and eventually if you're going to run the sort of navy that he has always said you need to run Uh, then you're going to need more of these. And that's what we've got to wait for, maybe the next Defence Review.
0: And we hear today the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, has been appointed as the government's shipbuilding czar. What does that mean?
3: It means absolutely not... Well, it means that he he is responsible for shipbuilding, to get shipbuilding going in this country. One of the problems the one we've only got the, got the uh, solution today who's going to build this that Babcock's are going to build it is none of the shipyards preferred
0: bidder we're told preferred bidder
3: <laughs> yeah you know, uh, none of the none of the ship uh, building companies wanted to do this job because they haven't got the capacity because they've got the pas- capacity. They've just done the uh, the aircraft carriers and then the Type 26s that he mentions, which is anti-submarine warfare, far more sophisticated ships. And so that's been very difficult. The other two companies have been going, uh, building a vessel uh, based on one that's in South Africa, another one which is a Danish ship, and the Navy really didn't want that to happen. What we've got here is a thing called an Arrowhead class, which is already a, a design, which is actually which is actually really good. The alternative was a thing called the Leander, which is an a famous design of of frigates. The important bit that you have to consider is size of the ship say five 6,000 tonnes, what can you do with a ship five 6,000 tonnes? Well, the first thing you can probably do is to put two helicopters on board. If you put two helicopters on board, you've got a bit more space because you'll need 120 techies to actually keep the things flying, etc. And that becomes very important. It's a different type of uh, and working And unmanned
0: ship. underwater vehicles, you mentioned
3: as well. But the thing about the, the Secretary of State, Ben Wallace, uh, the government sees this as a bigger thing than just building a couple of frigates. The government sees this as saying, "Let's revitalize Britain's shipbuilding capability. At their yards, places in, in in you know on the Clyde, for example, Ferguson's, as mm. well as the Babcock and the BAE uh, systems. But also start thinking: Can we, as a consequence of this?" Start selling more yeah. types of ships abroad, like tugs mm. like 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 cruise ships or whatever and, and that's and that's and that's his job
0: and we 'll look forward to seeing exactly what's happening in two thousand and twenty three uh, Now police chiefs in Northern Ireland say a bomb in Londonderry was built with the aim of killing police officers. The device was in an advanced state of readiness when it was found during a security search targeting the new IRA in the Craigan estate on Monday. The police service of Northern Ireland say they have noticed a change of tempo in dissident activity in recent months. Mark Lindsay is the chairman of the Police Federation of Northern Ireland and joins us now. Mark Lindsay, thanks for your time today. Why are these attacks uh, targeting the PSNI happening right now? Well,
4: I think there's a a number of reasons. Um, I think uh, first and foremost that uh, we have a young group of, of people coming through led by uh, probably older, more sinister elements who who are, who are quite prepared to to carry on uh, with the indoctrination of young people and taken towards a political ideal. Now, I think the, the timing uh, isn't lost in anyone. I think probably not so much due to Brexit. I think it's more to do with the fact that for the past two and a half years, we've had no ple- political direction or leadership in Northern Ireland. We've had no uh, executive in place. And in that vacuum, these people start to have their voices heard.
0: What have you noticed since you've been in post?
4: Well, I've noticed very, very clearly over the, over the past number of years that uh, very, very uh, random attacks and, you know, we can never really be off guard because we we have operated under the severe terrorist threat uh, since 2009. So that means that an attack is highly likely and we haven't
3: moved away from that.
0: Why was there such a big raid on Cregan, Christopher?
3: Well, it's, a, it's an area where... where, where it's very sensitive very susceptible to this rage 80 police officers are involved in 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 this and you you where you've got a contingent of of dissidents for example they don't they tend not to move from uh, from their own patches
0: Mm. you're you're back now mark lindsay sorry we lost you there briefly Uh, just tell us a bit more about who you believe is behind the attacks on police and the planned attacks on police
4: well, I've no doubt that uh, it's a new IRA who are who are really um, uh, gathered together, probably of of some newer elements, but I think driven by uh, older elements from uh, the more mainstream uh, old IRA type groupings who were dissatisfied with the direction of, of Sinn Féin, who were who were dissatisfied with uh, the political uh, and with uh, political direction that was taken post the Good Friday Agreement. So, really, what they've done is resurrected uh, their old Capabilities, their old techniques, and they're now passing these on to a new generation. Mm.
0: And how are police officers actually handling this? Because I understand that parts, well, the Craigan now is pretty much a no go area for the police.
4: Well, there's no, no, I have to say, there's no areas that are no go areas. There's areas where, um, as we have always had to do, uh, make a very considered uh, assessment before we respond or before we patrol in them. So, the police officers who are come under attack, they, the areas like the Cregan um, is, is an area where there is a, a, a number of these people operating. And I think it's disappointing for the good people, for the thousands of good people who live in those areas, that they're actually being held to ransom by a very, very small number of people who are determined uh, not only to, uh, to put the community's lives at risk, but to murder police officers.
0: Mm, how do you defeat this kind of insurgency? What, what's the solution? Is it troops back on the street, special forces, more intrusive intelligence? Or do you go for the individuals?
4: That's a very good question. I'm sure you get a, a, a broad spectrum of people answering answering <laughs> that. Uh, but I, I have seen, uh, you know, certainly uh, from my 32 years in the police, I think we've moved to a different place. I think to to, to bring the military back would be a massive, great step. Um, and we, we we think we can we can move forward without that. However, what we do need significant investment in policing. We have seen uh, policing in Northern Ireland subjected to the to similar cuts uh, as they've had across the rest of the United Kingdom. Now, in, in our uh, in our environment, that means that uh, specialist officers, such as neighbourhood officers, people who, who know the communities, people who interact with the communities, have been have been taken off the streets simply because we do not have the numbers. And I think not only from an intelligence gathering point of view, but from uh, the point of view where police can interact with the community, people can work with local representatives to solve problems and to actually help uh, the areas be better uh, and be better places to live. That is the way forward. It is not about uh, remilitarizing it is about winning the hearts and minds getting more people from those areas to actually join the police so that so that we can all move forward together. We're very, very nearly there um, and it's very, very dis- disappointing, both for me as a police officer and as a citizen, uh, to see these groups start to get mm. a bit of a grip again.
0: Mark Lindsay, uh, our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee has been listening to what you've been saying. He's here in the studio with me.
3: Mark, I was just thinking, you know, we mustn't give an idea that this is 69 again or 72 or 73, and for that sort of period. The PSNI is, you know, is up there with the top policing organisations in Europe now um, this is not when you had the old RUC and the B specials and all the problems that you had in that early period the other thing is the aid to the civil power, the troops back on the streets, uh, as Jim Callaghan when he was home secretary he said when he sent, the, sent soldiers on the streets into Northern Ireland, that's easy how do I get them off and the 30 odd years proved that to be true this is something for the PNSI to, to handle, nobody else
4: I, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more with you. I think that uh, we do have specialist military support uh, in the problems at the moment, uh, of which we're very, very grateful. That uh, comes uh, uh, in, the, in the form of uh, uh, bomb disposal experts, for example. Uh, we have we have military support where we need it. However, I think you're, you're absolutely right. This is for um, us to be probably resourced for for a longer a longer strategy, probably uh, than what we had before. I think where we were before was we could not. Uh, we had to downsize the numbers of police uh, at a time when I don't think we are ready to do that. Um, the environment had changed, but I think we moved too quickly. And I think a lot of it was down to uh, to cost-cutting. I think also that uh, some of our politicians uh, thought that the hard work had been done, when particularly maybe the hard work was only just beginning, and it was to embed uh, the peace agreement that had been that had been so hard won by both the actions of, uh, of the police and the military over 30 years and by the politicians who made it happen.
0: And there we'll have to leave it for the moment. Mark Lindsay from the Police Federation of Northern Ireland. Good to talk to you. Thank you for your time today. Now, this week, US President Donald Trump got rid of another national security advisor. John Bolton said he resigned, but Trump said different. Washington is that kind of place. And Bolton is the third national security advisor to be sacked. Let's talk to the Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, Dr Karen von Hippel. Karen, hi. How far apart and on what national security issues were the two men?
5: Oh, I think they were very far far apart. But Trump knew that when he hired him, Trump knew that Bolton was a hawk and wanted to go to war essentially in four places: in Iran, Venezuela, uh, probably not negotiate with the the Taliban, and uh, North Korea. Uh, but Trump liked having him in the room. He liked his his punditing, punditry on Fox News before Trump hired him. So I think he knew what he was getting into, but then the relationship fell apart, as it will with pretty much everyone in, his, in Trump's orbit.
0: And, and does getting rid of Bolton mean a change in policy?
5: No, because Trump doesn't really listen to anybody anyway. If you recall when there was a possibility that the U.S. might bomb Iran and he pulled back in the last minute, it was about a month and a half ago, he didn't do that because... I mean, he withdrew because he was listening to Tucker Carlson on Fox News, not the National Security Advisor who wanted to do it.
0: Christopher, does Trump really need a National Security Advisor in that light?
3: Well, I wonder now. I mean, when the National Security Advisor was first appointed home a few years ago, um, there were a lot of people in Washington said, look, do we need this fellow who who probably uh, is is not a professional in the area, who's simply pulling everything together? Um, and it seems superfluous. Well, as you know, as Cameron is really suggesting there, the the real uh, national security advisor is Donald Trump himself. So perhaps this, this is better in the hands as, it, as, as, as once it might have been in, in the State Department, uh, rather than bringing it in this area, which is always going to be out on its mm. own with maybe the callings of 14 other agencies.
0: Well, let's bring in Fawaz Jarjews, Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics. Good to speak to you today, Professor. Uh, perhaps the most volatile issue in the Bolton-Trump relationship centred on Iran.
6: Well, absolutely. I mean, Bolton, for your own listeners... Uh, Bolton is the architect of the so-called maximum pressure policy uh, on Iran. Uh, Bolton is the architect of really basically uh, making sure that Iran does not export one single barrel of oil. Uh, Bolton is a person who believes in regime change in Iran. Uh, He does not really believe in talking to the Iranians. He wants Iran to surrender. Uh, So even though uh, he was really the architect of Trump's uh, strategy towards Iran. Trump does not really believe in regime change in Iran. Uh, Trump does not really get, does not really want to get into a military confrontation with Iran. Not just on Iran, on Afghanistan, uh, on North Korea, on Venezuela. So, but I, I think my take on it: the trigger was Afghanistan, but Iran is a big uh, hurdle, big problem between Bolton and Trump.
0: Uh, Afghanistan, you mentioned, of course, Donald Trump is now saying the talks are off and threatening they'll hit back if uh, there are any attacks on U.S. soil. Uh, how do you see that situation developing, Karen? In
5: well, Afghanistan, I, mean, look- oh, I, I think it's going to deteriorate. It's likely to deteriorate. The elections are coming up soon and the Taliban will say, okay, you pulled out of the talks, this is what happens when you pull out of the talks. So there's likely to be more violence. I think it'll probably help Ashraf Ghani in his run for presidency because he, the government was not part of the negotiation between the Taliban and the United States. And so they still would have had to agree on whatever was proposed and had the talks made enough progress right before the elections, it could have really impacted uh, Ghani's chances of winning again. So there, you know, there are a number of, uh, of ways it'll impact what's going on in Afghanistan. Oh, sorry, I cut you off.
6: No, I mean what we need to understand. I mean there is a fundamental paradigm, uh, basically shift or change between Bolton and Trump. Say what have you about Trump? Trump does not really believe in deepening American military engagements in the world. Whether you're talking about Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, Trump does not really want to make any strategic investment, militarily or uh, uh, diplomatically in the world, where uh, Bolton believes in projecting American military minds. He believes in deploying American military might. And finally, uh, I mean, Trump came to believe that Bolton, not only he does not really present his uh, world view, but uh, Bolton could really basically trip uh, Trump into a military confrontation um, either in North Korea or uh, Iran or somewhere else.
0: Christopher Lee, on the subject of Iran, how likely is is a meeting that's been talked about between uh, the U.S. and Iran at the U.N. General Assembly meeting next week?
3: Well, you can always get meetings in in margins and never, never, never sort of uh, uh, set those things aside. But I think this whole thing with Iran is it, it it's just a slightly larger picture. Um, whatever the relationship between uh, America, let's say in Iran, we then, when we get to discuss it, you find that because of the um, conf- conflicts between uh, m- Muslim uh, peoples, Shia and Sunni for example, um, Iran also involves the conflicts in Yemen, the political conflict with Israel as well as the military potential, uh, with Saudi Arabia, uh, with Iraq and with Syria and with Israel. Now, this is particularly important to remember. It is not simply Iran and will they or will they not build uh, uh, nuclear 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 warheads?
0: Karen von Hippel,
5: um, go on. Well, I was just going to say about uh, the Rouhani meeting. I think Trump. I think Trump is very interested in. Uh, redoing the JCPOA. I wonder if FOWAS would agree with me, but I have a feeling Trump doesn't actually care that much he was more interested in undoing what Iran, Obama did. the Iran did. nuclear
0: deal, basically.
5: Yeah, sorry, the Iran nuclear deal. In other words, Trump has been more interested in undoing Obama's legacy than he cares that much about the deal. And I think he would like to go back and meet the Iranians and say, I made a better deal. And so there is a very good chance that they will meet and that there will be a follow-on meeting. The Iranians have been the ones who have been reluctant to meet with Trump, but they may have changed their mind. I mean, I'm not sure if I was would know more about this anyway than I do. So current Karen. On. Well, I think Karen, Karen
6: is absolutely correct. Whether you're talking about the uh, environment, the climate, whether you're talking about Iran, whether you're talking about North Korea, it's all about Barack Obama. He was really trying to get rid of the Obama legacy. But the question of Iran is extremely, extremely complex, um, as uh, you know, your, your other guests. Uh, correctly said. It's not just about the nuclear deal. It's about Iran's uh, military and political engagement in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen. The big point here, final point, what we need to understand when when we're talking about uh, Donald Trump foreign policy, it's dysfunctional, it's chaotic, it's all personalized. You do not know. I mean, can anyone really predict or even really make a definitive statement about what's the, really the strategic posture or worldview of, of Donald Trump. We just can't.
0: Can anyone who's listening now? <laughs> I don't suppose so. Karen?
5: No, he doesn't, he doesn't have a strategic bone in his body and he's not really, he, even if he, he knows where he eventually wants to get, he doesn't know how to get there. And he doesn't know how to lead a team to get there because he wants to do it all himself. And so his entire team doesn't know how to push for what he wants because he can't fully articulate what he wants. And he doesn't, like people being too far ahead of him on any issue, so he contradicts his team all the time too so we're absolutely kept in the dark what does he want on north korea what does he want on china we don't even know he's in the middle of a a huge trade war with china we don't really know how he defines success
6: but we know we know one thing it's all about donald trump it's all about his domestic base of support it's all about electoral politics i mean in in a way really donald trump is there is one particular world of view and that's America's first and his social base of support in the United States and the second presidential term that's coming up very soon. You yes.
3: also get to the point where, about that so-called meeting in Camp David with Taliban um, when you start to see an image and that is that Trump says we're going to have a meeting with Taliban. And they're not going to have a meeting with Taliban and nobody's organized a meeting with <laughs> Taliban and then they say well look we better put together a meeting with Taliban now that's how rickety uh, uh, tweeting foreign policy gets.
0: So Karen um, just to come back to the, the thought of the National Security Advisor who mm-hmm. do you think the replacement will be and after all we just heard about Donald Trump does it really matter who that person is anyway?
5: Yeah, exactly. That is the important point. It doesn't matter. He thinks he's his best advisor. So he'll bring somebody in, and that person won't last very long either, unless they're like Pompeo and spend all their time trying to become the Trump whisperer and never go against the boss. Could he double job, they don't, Mike Pompeo? I doubt it. It would be too complicated. The job of the National Security Advisor is to pull in the rest of the foreign policy establishment, which is also DOD, the intelligence community, homeland security, et cetera. So it's not just about the State Department. So it doesn't really make sense, but you never know. He, you know, he's open. He could do anything.
0: All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. Dr. Karen von Hippel and Professor Fawaz Jerjes, thank you very much for joining us today. The UK's special forces are advertising for new recruits. The SAS and SBS are aiming to boost their numbers to deal with increased challenges at, at home and abroad. Well, Colin Armstrong is the former SAS man turned best-selling author, better known by his pen name, Chris Ryan. I asked him about the challenges facing the SAS in today's modern warfare.
1: Over the past 20 years, they've been really stretched with... Uh, being embedded in the the two campaigns in the Middle East. Um, The regiment obviously has a role back in the UK um, working with the Met um, on the anti-terrorist side. Um, I don't believe that the regiment is any bigger than it it was in the 80s but um, what they have now is um, SFSG, the um, Special Forces Support Group, which actually shrouds them and it takes a load off the regiment in terms of commitment. If you you look at the regiment as the tip of the spear, then you have their support group which can help them go on to target. I know the, the regiment have had a problem with recruiting because since the 80s, the our military has has shrunken by 50 percent so that means there's less guys you know that will apply for selection mm. and it's I guess it's the same for the SBS as well
0: yeah so we, so we have these adverts in places like Soldier Magazine is it a good way to go about recruiting for special forces
1: oh, yeah I think absolutely um communicate I mean eight first of all 18 SIGs uh, UKSF are the largest regiment in the British Army now, they're looking for communicators, uh, which is a skill within itself. Um, and it's, it's probably just an indication of the shortages of manpower um, in, in the military.
0: Mm. In your book, uh, in your novels, you paint very romantic, you could say, pictures of SAS soldiers, burly, brave heroes facing ruthless enemies, soldiers challenging authority, prepared to operate outside the rules, potentially. Um, but the reality is very different, isn't it?
1: Um, Well, no, I would say it it isn't actually. Um, These guys now are are door kickers, and um, they're flying in nightly in the Middle East. Uh, I know there's a squadron operating there. Uh, They're going out doing jobs, taking out high value targets, coming back, and then you know they'll do a six month rotation between Iraq, Afghanistan, and possibly Syria. And they call that the Circle of Death. I mean, these guys are are committed soldiers. you know, and their workload is is absolutely horrendous. But
0: I suppose what I mean is that the rules of engagement are very precise and presumably specific to each mission. Is that right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, they well. Yes, they have to be. Um, no, well, let's not get into that. Um, where where they have to be precise is when they're working on the mainland um, with the police on any incident that is terror-based.
0: So your storyline is about the hunt for an operative thought to have gone rogue and on a killing spree against his former comrades. Do SAS soldiers really turn rogue in your experience?
1: <sighs> no i it's in terms of the novel uh, what what, what the outline of the, of the novel is that um, there is a British um, Muslim soldier who joins One Para, which is the SF support group, and he's quite a capable soldier, and he's identified by the security services to be brought in to be part of a, an undercover operation. So there's a number of SES soldiers that run these training teams uh, in reality, and uh, basically uh, they train this guy, And then they orchestrate his departure from the army, i.e. getting kicked out. And he is then left out to dry in the hope that he will be contacted by a fundamentalist group and then taken out to fight for ISIS. And as the story unfolds, we, are, we see that he's passing on through a handler, um, high-grade intelligence, and several attacks on the British mainland are, 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 are basically stopped.
0: The MOD never comments on special forces operations. Do, do you think it's time for them to be explained to the public, though?
1: Not really. Um, it, in time, it will come out, you know, w- what they were doing, but they still have to have that veil of secrecy on. Um, around these these operations.
0: And Chris Ryan's book, Black Ops, is out now. Uh, Chris, let's uh, go back to the top of the programme where we started with the announcements of the Type 31 and the uh, proposed contract, well, the preferred bidder going to Babcock. Uh, the Royal Navy, sorted?
3: It's sort of, isn't it? It's the shape there. We've got talk about the Type 26 frigate, and that is the anti-submarine warfare frigate, uh, and which is very sophisticated. We've got the Type 45 which is the best air defence destroyer in in the world, probably at the moment? Uh, Will have the five Type 31s, which is the mini size of the package. In the end, the navy has been looking to get about 19, 20 surface ships like that, uh, the, the top of their top of their field, and also probably uh, about all the navy can actually man because the Navy's got a problem about finding people to drive these ships as well. And so you've got an idea of what the, ship, the Navy looks like. Now, what is it going to be asked to do with these ships? They can't just wander around the Gulf of Hormuz and justify themselves, or put two of them into in, the Bahamas to help out with a uh, hurricane rescue. So it's interesting. The Navy is going to start rethinking itself to be a force projection organization. Two carriers, one at sea at any one time. That's force projection on a major scale.
0: Oh, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can tweet us at BFBS rep. If you've joined us halfway through, subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.